Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some uh, physical Bibles scattered around the room and the little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely adore for you to take one of those home. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe it's the, the tool that God uses to shape us individually and as a body called the church. Uh, we believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his people. And so uh, we, we put the, the scriptures on a, on a high bar here. And so uh, we would think it more valuable for you to take one home and start reading it than for it to sit on a shelf all week. Capiche? Good. All right. So if you don't have a Bible, take that one. Ephesians chapter 4. We're getting pretty deep now into a series that we've been working on since the beginning of July. Um, it's after Thanksgiving. All right. Um, uh, called To the Saints. It's, uh, it's a letter uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the first century city of Ephesus. Ephesus, back in Paul's day, uh, was a massive deal. Uh, a lot of people think it was the fourth or fifth biggest city in the world at the time. A uh, major hub for economics and, and culture and religious matters. The Temple of Artemis was there, one of the seven wonders in the ancient world. And so Ephesus was a big deal, yo. And, um, and so Paul uh, saw that as a hub uh, for ministry. And the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Paul based himself there for about two to three years. And because of his preaching in Ephesus, the gospel went through all of Asia. And when they say that, they mean the, the first century Roman way of using the word Asia, which is Turkey, Asia Minor. All right, so... Um, it spread from the port city of Ephesus all over the place. And so we've been calling our series to the saints, and it's pretty simple why. Um, the saints, uh, as far as a biblical definition, are people who have been declared holy by God. Right? Not some venerated class of people, not some people who have performed a miracle or trusted God in some extraordinary way. They're people who trusted God for salvation. Right? People who have been declared righteous, declared holy, sanctified. It's got the same root as, as all the other sanctified, holified words in the Bible. Hog, H-A-G. Right? And so we've been walking through the series because the saints are anybody who's trusted Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here, that means you're a saint. And so a letter that's addressed in chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints at Ephesus might have something to say to us, right? Yeah, it's a practical letter that talks about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the context of community. All right? So we've been working for a while now on that. Uh, we've been working for several weeks, specifically in chapter 4. All right? uh, Paul's tone changes in chapter 4. And he goes from moving, he moves from um, uh, massive truth claim after truth claim after truth claim after truth claim in the first three chapters. And then in chapter 4, he starts off with this idea of therefore, and it's this massive swing. Right? Uh, and so he moves from massive propositional truth claim to this is how you respond in light of those truth claims. And so we've been spending a lot of time in chapter 4 lately. Uh, last week, JB uh, helps us understand that walking differently than those who don't know Jesus is fundamental to our new identities. That to be given a new heart is to be given a radical new identity. And the picture that Paul uses to illustrate that is to take off the old self and to put on the new self, right? The picture, it's like, think of it like clothing. You're taking off the old you and you're putting on the new you. You take off your old values, your old worldview, your old way of doing things, and you put on a Jesus-centered, gospel-saturated way of living and seeing the world. You put off the old you and you put on the new you. So are y'all ready to close out chapter four today? <laughs> It, it took us 
five months to get to... Oh, by the way, we're going to shut this down next week for a month and a half. <laughs> Do Christmas and, and New Year's stuff. But we'll come back to it. We'll probably finish Ephesians right up close to Easter. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> All right. Ephesians chapter 4. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> I apologize. It's going to happen. Verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Okay, so Paul is going to begin to flesh out what he means. You know, we started with a therefore, right? We've talked about this over and over and over again. Paul's going to uh, end verse 24 by saying that we have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so he begins to uh, flesh out what that looks like. And the first thing that he wants to clarify is what? That we walk with these new identities and we put away falsehood and instead speak truth. That's the first thing he wants to talk about after saying you're a new person. The first thing. That even though the world around us would use falsehood to their advantage, that the follower of Jesus is frustratingly truthful. Anybody ever, have you ever seen that from the Christian? Are we living up to that? Hopefully. I mean, don't we live in a world where we just kind of expect whole categories of people to lie to us? Whether it be lawyers or politicians, major corporations, movie stars, whatever. Don't we just kind of expect whole categories of people not to give us the truth? I can't be the only one that's frustrated by that. I'm not? Good. Paul says that the new identities we have in Christ ought to cause us to be the most honest people in the room. Now, that doesn't mean that non-Christians aren't truthful. All right? that, that's not at all. That's a straw man. We're not going there. All right? There are other things that can drive truthfulness. You, whether it's your own family values or your own sense of personal ethics. Maybe it's just the way you were raised. There, there are lots of non-believers who are very, very, very truthful. But for the follower of Jesus, there's something eternal driving that in there. Of course the non-Christian can be honest. But at the end of the day, it's on them. For the follower of Jesus, there's something in us. Okay. For the follower of Jesus, there's something in us that drives us to the truth. That we put away falsehood and we instead speak the truth, Paul says. Paul says that it's not just something that can define us, it's something that ought to define us. A natural outworking of a new heart is to put away falsehood and speak the truth. Now, does this mean that we should all be jerks for Jesus? Don't we also all know people like that? Say the meanest things. Oh, I'm just being honest. Just telling it like it is. No. In case you were wondering, no. Uh, hold your finger there and look back at verse 2 real quick. Verse 2 is also in the context of walking with this new life. And Paul says that we ought to define ourselves with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, do we call a time out with bearing one another in love and instead speak truth for a moment? Do we have to flip-flop between those? So somehow they're held in tandem, right? 
we speak the truth. It's, it's dripping in humility. It is absolutely dripping in gentleness. We speak the truth. You ever seen what that looks like? You ever watched that play out? Like there's a difference between the guy who just wants to swing the hammer and the guy with tears in his eyes. Listen, I love you, but. Man, I value that second guy. I need to hear from that second guy, don't you? Paul says, put away falsehood, speak the truth. But Paul keeps moving on to the next thing. Ephesians 4 just kind of reads like a list, and so Paul keeps going, he doesn't stop. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. All right, so some of y'all made this a rule for your marriages, right? Hopefully you have. (laughs) Some of you have learned by experience what happens when you don't practice this, right? That other person, man, they're wrong and they ought to know they're wrong. And the more you just dwell on it, the more it festers. Am I wrong? And the less that they can do right. You ever seen somebody who everything they say and do is the wrong thing? It's probably not their fault. Now, some of you have practiced this in your marriage, and that, listen, that's, that's good advice. That's, that's sound wisdom, not to let the sun go down on your anger, to deal with problems before they turn into bigger problems, right? But Paul's not talking to couples here, is he? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. So while it may be good advice for your marriage, that's not what's in Paul's sights right now. So it, not only is it possible for you to, to fail to deal with the problem in between your, the two spouses, not only is that something that's small that festers into something big, but that can also happen in the life of the church, right? It is absolutely possible for us to, to kind of sweep stuff under the rug or act like something is not an issue so long that it becomes a massive issue. And Paul says when that happens, it's nothing more than a scheme of the devil. Isn't that what he said? Look at, look at it again. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to who? I mean, just think about it for a second. If Satan's goal is to prevent God from getting glory, to rob him of glory, wouldn't it make a lot of sense to busy God's people up with a bunch of infighting? I mean, that's, that's just strategic right there. And so Paul says, hey, don't give the devil that opportunity. Deal with the junk before it becomes bigger junk. Don't let it fester handle it reduce the opportunities for satan to interfere with what's going on here by dealing with it promptly but again paul keeps going verse 28 let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need so the back end of ephesians 4 reads almost like a to-do list right it just moves from one thing to the next and so paul moves on to the next thing and it's super practical right i mean think about it if the gospel is doing what the gospel is supposed to do well then that means that there are a lot of nefarious characters coming here and knowing and hearing about jesus right people with baggage 
Like if, if people come in our door already cleaned up, it might not be the gospel of Jesus Christ we're preaching. I mean, have you ever thought through that? And so if the church is what the church is supposed to be and the gospel is being preached the way the gospel is supposed to be preached, that means that people are coming to know Jesus and they got, they got a past. And sometimes that past is pretty shady. And Paul says, hey, you know what? You know what you can do? Give that person with all the baggage, the, the person that had the thief background, give them something to do with his hands. Give them some work to do. There's a lot of good reasons to do that, right? I mean, don't we all have experience knowing that like, if we busy ourselves with good things, we're less tempted towards the bad things? I mean, I think every one of us can probably share a story or two. Don't all of us have, have this, this thing in us where we, where we want to participate and we want to pour in? Paul says, give them something to do, but there's a so that in the middle of the sentence, isn't there? So what do we do with that, church? We treat it like a means to an end, Right? So as great as it is for the former thief to be doing something that prevents them from falling back into old habits and practices, what's even better is that they are now contributing to others' needs. Is that what he says? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, comma, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul's instructions here are not about distracting people from old habits. And it's not about making them productive enough to stand on their own feet. Those aren't bad things. Those are good things, but they're not primary. It's about folding them into the whole church. Into what we've all been called to do, right? I mean, if you were to give a, a real quick running definition of what mature following Jesus looks like in the context of community, would it not be think of yourself less and serve others more? I mean, we got a better option? Paul says, hey, listen, get that thief, that guy with the baggage, give him something to do that's not just constructive, not just distracting from the old habits, not just you know, able to give him some, some a sense of accomplishment. No, 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 let him pour into the body. Let him be a part of what all of us are doing here. Give him something to do that has body consequences and not just personal consequences but Paul keeps going verse 29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear uh, the word corrupting there is the Greek word sapros everybody say sapros you're all Greek scholars good job sapros carries the idea of being physically destructive think acid eating away at something. Like if you pour acid on the base of a structure, it's not going to blow up, right? It's going to continue to eat away at it until there's nothing worth left in that structure. It's going to compromise the structure, right? Think acid. That's, that's the, the tone that, that Sapros carries here, right? Now, if you grew up in church, you probably sat under a youth pastor sermon or two where they pointed at this text and they said, don't cuss. There's other texts you can go to, but this is the granddaddy, right? This is the one you want to use. Don't cuss. A couple problems, though. If we make this text out to be about Paul telling Christians not to cuss. The first problem is this. 
Don't we immediately then have to define what words are good and what words are bad? Yeah. And who gets to make the list? Is it me? Because I got some ideas. Is it you? Someone with less scruples. Like, is it just the big four-letter ones or the, the safer, somewhat cleaner ones are acceptable? Like, if you're asking my Sunday school teacher growing up, nope. What about the super, super clean Christian youth group words like, like crud muffin, <laughs> son of a motherless goat? Google the Tim Hawkins routine later. Like, who gets to make the list? Does it change based on what room we're in and who's in the audience? What if kids are there? What if we go to another culture where they have a different sensibility about vocabulary words? I mean, we could say some stuff here that would not be so great on British Airways. Right? Like, best case scenario, if this is the route that we're going to run, is that we are constantly trying to spin our wheels and come to a consistency over something that is, in, in the end, just going to change the second we change our circumstances. The second problem we create if we make this to be about cuss words is this, is that it robs Paul of everything he's trying to say right here. It robs Paul of the weight of what he's going after. Now, dirty little four-letter words can most certainly be included in the scope of what Paul is talking about here, but it's not the weight. Paul is saying that what comes out of our mouths to people and about people matters. It matters that our words are either building someone up or they're corrupting and tearing them down, eating away like acid at the base. It is entirely possible for us to refrain from using specific vocabulary words and yet be irreparably destructive in the way that we talk to each other. That's what Paul's going for. Does this mean that you can't be critical of someone or something? Not at all. This has everything to do with motives, right? Corrupting talk flows out of the heart that is seeking to corrupt. Seeking to get a little jab in, right? The word sapros occurs only a couple of other times in the Bible. A couple of other times in the New Testament. The first time, it occurs several times when Jesus is talking about good trees producing good fruit and bad trees producing bad fruit or diseased trees producing diseased fruit. Diseased, sapros. The other time is when Jesus is telling a parable about some fishermen sitting on the shore after their catch and they've got all their fish laid out and they're pulling the bad putrid fish out of the catch so it doesn't spoil all the good fish. Putrid fish? Sapros. Paul says that the way we talk to people matters. The way we talk about people matters. Can we list off some specific words that would be unchristlike to say? Absolutely we could, but Paul has his sights set far higher than that. To put on the new self is to put on a desire to build up others with our speech instead of serving ourselves and tearing them down. But Paul is not done, and Paul keeps going. 32. Or sorry, 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All right, so I don't think there's a person in this room, I'll just go out on a limb, I don't think there's a person in this room who would say, uh, that they would look at that list that Paul gives right there and say that those things are helpful, right? No one's going, you know what we need in this world? More slander. No one thinks slander is a good thing, especially if you've been on the receiving end of it, right? No one here Absolutely no one. I'll just put my foot in the ground. No one thinks that clamor is valuable. Especially if you've been the one responsible for trying to clear up the story. And all the competing bickering is going on. And people are throwing out their opinions and they have no idea what actually happened. You ever been in that room? No one thinks clamor is a good thing. Put my flag in the ground. If you think malice is a good thing, you belong in jail. Right? And I don't mind telling you after we're done, but I'm going to have Andrew Johnson stand between us. (laughs) No one. Not a soul in here. Me, you, otherwise. No one thinks that anything on this list is a good and valuable thing in the world. But every single one of us, myself included, if we're honest this morning, can look at this list and confess to some things. Am I wrong? There have been times in my life that even though I firmly believe that slander is the opposite of godliness, There are seasons in my life where I've come to my senses and I've gone, oh God, what have I done? How you doing on that one? There, I am absolutely convinced that clamor and bitterness, they they harm people, they harm relationships, they wreck what's going on here. Bitterness will, will derail the train about as fast as anything I can imagine. But there are also seasons in my life where I've lifted the level of my eyes and come to my senses and realized, oh no, what am I doing? Any different? No one thinks these are good things, but all of us can confess to some things this morning. JB talked last week about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, right? Hear me, church. That is not a one-time, I think I can remember it way back when, event. It is a daily dying to ourselves as we pick up our cross and follow him. It is a daily crucifying the old me and a daily putting on the new self as I seek to look more and more like him. And there are seasons where I'm a little more successful and there are seasons where I have to repent of some things. Falling into the rut of sin toward others is not something I have to go out of my way to accomplish. It's in me. It is the natural inclination of my heart that I have been commanded to put on the new self a self that is now identified, defined by righteousness and holiness. But isn't that asking too much? 
I mean, doesn't the world just use these things every day? I mean, spend, spend 15 minutes on Twitter this afternoon. Watch some cable news when you get home. I mean, doesn't it seem like slander and clamor is the currency of our day? If, if, if you don't think that's true, you're either, you're either not participating in those things, which God love you, or maybe you're blind to some things. These things are the, the currency of the world that we live in. You get things done in our world by slandering others. This is an uphill battle, guys. Oh, but our God's good. And he gives us a new heart. And this, my beloved church, is where we need to remind ourselves this morning that we are operating within the context of therefore. Remember what I told you a few weeks ago? That we're going to constantly come back to the reality that any command that God has placed on us is nothing more than the, the appropriate fleshing out of what he's already joyfully declared us to be. So if, if you weren't here, maybe you're a visitor today, hear, hear what I'm saying. Chapter four comes in the middle of the letter. There's three chapters of God did this and God did this and God did this long before any of these commands enter the picture. We are operating in the context of, therefore, God has done. He has declared us righteous. We are now the saints if you know Jesus. And he has commanded us in light of that reality to put on the new self. Despite how difficult it might be. Despite how uphill that, that track may be. Look at verse 32 again. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave who? Paul says that we should forgive each other. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, right? I mean, there's a ton of good reasons why. So let's give it a shot. I mean, does refusing to forgive drive a wedge between you and someone else? I mean, that's a, that's a worldly wisdom that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it does. That's not why Paul tells us to forgive, does, is it? Does refusing to forgive each other eat away at you from the inside and prevent you from walking in freedom? You bet it does. That's not the reason that Paul told us to forgive. Does refusing to forgive steal your focus to lesser issues and distract you from your calling? Yeah, yeah, probably. But church, that is not why Paul commanded us to forgive. Is because you and I, if you know Jesus, have been forgiven of a far, far more heinous crime. If you understand the gospel correctly, then you understand that there is absolutely nothing in this world that can be committed against you that is worse than what you have already been forgiven of by God. Nothing. But what about nothing? Listen, the, the Christian is not the doormat, but the Christian is very first and foremost the one who deeply understands just how desperately they need a Savior. The Christian doesn't allow themselves to be walked all over, but the Christian is first and foremost the one who understands just how much they've been forgiven. We fall into believing that trespasses committed against us are too big when we lose sight of our own trespasses against a eternally and infinitely 
holy, good God. You don't measure up to him. And so the command to forgive is not some random rule from a because I said so God. I think our God's a because I said so God. I fall victim to that in, in parenting sometimes. Anybody else do that? I, I hear it coming out of my mouth and I go, oh no! God is not a because I said so God. I know we've been over this before, but we have to come back to it over and over again because it will absolutely affect the way you relate to him. His commands are a mirroring of his character. That's a theological truth we have to lock down this morning. His commands are a mirroring of his character. He doesn't command a single thing from you that he is not first and foremost perfectly in himself. And his commands are about walking in step with who has already joyfully declared you to be as well. And so because of that, we forgive far more than the world around us would ever think is deserved. And it's because you know and have experienced a level of forgiveness that they don't have a clue about. As the world around you goes, that doesn't make any sense. You're right. If you knew what I knew, you'd be in the same boat. When the world, world around you says, no, 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 that's unfair for you. Yeah, I know. Guess what's been already given to me? To understand the gospel correctly is to see yourself as the greatest sinner in the room. And despite what may be done to you, as terrible as those things might be, and there may be earthly consequences for those things. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying you should be a doormat. Despite what those things are, you understand at a core level of what you have been for given. Paul says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. You press in through your daily practice of, you take your daily practice and you measure it. You put it up to the grid of what, is, what you have been called to. And, and if there's some discrepancy there, you, we need to do something about it, right? To, to put off the old self and to put on the new self means, listen, there is a measuring stick that we can use here. We have been saved by grace, but now that we have handled that, he has called us to live. And, and there's grace in the, the working on that part too. But listen, the grid is there. And so we... We hold our daily practice up to that and we, we do what we should. Are you daily putting off the old self and putting on the new self? Does the heart that Jesus has given you affect the practical things all around you? And if not, why not? You press in this morning by trusting his great love for you and by trusting that he walks you with you throughout every step of that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be a time where you can honestly think through how to put some feet to a long list of practical stuff in the back half of chapter four. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. Hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus. Uh, your response this morning is to press into God by coming to know him. I mean, we talked a lot this morning about about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Listen, dead men can't change their clothes. 
In Ephesians 2, that's what the person who doesn't know Jesus is called. And so the first step for you is not to try to work a little harder and white-knuckle your way into more holiness. The first, the first step for you is to meet Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning for the very first time you want to repent of your sin and follow him as Lord. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up here to talk if that's something that's helpful for you. Let's do that right now. Let's respond. God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for being a God who doesn't just do the, the stuff at 30,000 feet, but you deal with the practical. You're a God of the everyday. And you are deeply concerned with how, how a saved heart fleshes itself out in a real world. So God, you have seen fit to give us commands and sometimes those commands are difficult and sometimes those commands are obvious and sometimes those commands are easy and sometimes I'm just so confused because I feel like I don't have a shot. But you are good and you haven't called me to anything unfairly and you haven't called me to anything that you have not first done for me. So God, I trust you. And where I'm working things out, I'm gonna lean on you I'm going to allow you to do the work too. God, for those in here who don't know you this morning, would you draw them to yourself? Would you make yourself known to people in this room right now? People who have never known you before. Would you draw them to yourself? I'm convinced that when we see you as you are, we are forever changed by that. So God, as we sing, would you do a mighty work? In your name.